Father God, we just love the words of that song, how they draw our attention upward, Lord. How we can get so bogged down, so focused on what's right in front of us, we forget about the greater truth of this world, that you are our creator, our father, our savior, that you love us so much, that you've made a way for us to be with you through your son. And so, God, as we now go to turn to your word, we just pause and worship. God, we glorify you for the amazing truth that you are. Father, as we turn now to the word, open our hearts, open our minds to hear what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, good morning. Go ahead and have a seat. My name's Colin. I'm one of the teachers here at Southside, and I get to share God's word with you today. But I wanted to start out by telling you a little story. Um, it's a uh, about a, uh, it's about me and my wife. We went on a trip to Mexico last month. Some of you may know this story already, but uh, we were in Mexico. We were having a great time. We went on this, we got on this boat to take the trip over to this remote fishing village out in the jungle, and we were going to stay the night over there, and on the boat ride, we got to see whales breaching in the water, and you know, the, the, the um, surf just going up all around us. It was a beautiful day. It was warm. We got there. You have to take these ATVs through these, you know, these low uh, rivers, and it just was amazing, the water splashing around us. We got to the Airbnb, and we checked in, and it was just gorgeous with these big palm trees just bending over the top of us, making this canopy, this little courtyard with this hammock, and we got into the room, and it was just beautiful, and there was purified water on the table, and, and it was just made out of these stones and this grass roof, and it was just paradise, you know? It was awesome. You just felt like, wow, this is going to be amazing, and so then we went, we took a walk into town along these cobblestone streets, and we had dinner at this, uh, this restaurant there, which was just so cool, watching the sun set over the, the little bay there, the little inlet, and uh, just the colors and the warmth. And then that night, you know, it was dark, and we're walking back to the Airbnb. We get back to the, to the place we were staying, and suddenly everything had changed. So we walk in the door, and I turn on the lights, and suddenly I notice that there's just a sea of lizards who have come out. And the moment the light comes on, they all look at me, and then they run behind, you know, the different uh, picture frames and things hanging on the wall. And so that was a little bit like, oh, interesting. You know, we have some visitors in here. And so then we, we keep going, we notice there's bugs everywhere. That in the dark, <laughs> in the, the, you know, as the temperatures lowered, they sought to go inward into our little home. And uh, they were all over the place. You know, we were trying to step around them, and they're all over the walls, and the lizards are chasing the bugs, and we are terrified of the whole thing. And then finally, in the shower, we find this, yeah, I know, this enormous spider... And here's the thing, it wasn't really a spider. We thought it was a spider at the time because it looked like a spider. It had these spindly legs, and it had eight of them, which I always thought meant it was a spider, right? Um, and so, yeah, it's an arachnid, thank you. So we saw this on the wall, and uh, I'm, I'm not kidding. I am not even exaggerating when I tell you it was bigger than my hand. Yeah, it had these long spindly legs, and it had a tail like with a stinger on it, and it had these crab arms in the front, and I swear I could hear it saying to me, you know, you, this is my house now, you know, it was just <laughs> horrifying. And so all that to say, what was beautiful and Edenic and idyllic and just a paradise during the daytime, in the nighttime became this grotesque house of horrors 
Um, we got under the, the mosquito net that they kindly provided to us. That should have been, you know, the, the first evidence that something was going to happen when we were there. We got in there and thought we would be safe, but the bugs started scaling the walls of the bed and coming up over the surface or tucking in the thing. And I'm trying to catch this beetle under a, a cup, and I accidentally hit it on the, in the middle of the thing with the cup, and it just squirts everywhere. So we got beetle juice all over the bed and my pillow, and it was just... It was horrifying. It was truly a nightmare. It was beautiful in the daytime. It was absolutely a terror in the night. Here's my point. <laughs> this does have a point. What was promised and what was delivered were two very different things. And nobody told us there weren't going to be, you know, there wasn't going to be the, you know, we weren't walking into the crypt that night. But, um, but still, what we expected and what we received were two very different things. I think that this is sometimes like what happens to people when they come to church. Think about it this way. We have these huge, transcendent, beautiful truths that we claim to believe as Christians. We believe the truths that we make these claims that we're created by Almighty God to glorify Him through a life-giving relationship of love. We're divided from God by our spiritual rebellion against His reign over the world. We're saved from condemnation, brought back into communion with God through His life, death, and resurrection in, through, and as the person of Jesus Christ. We're called to walk in newness of life by the Spirit of God working within us. We're awaiting God's final renewal and judgment of the world and eternal life in His presence. What a beautiful amazing story. And to say that we're people that believe that, that's incredible. But people hear that. They hear that message, and maybe they're interested in it, but sometimes, and all too often, people hear that message, they come to church, and they start to realize that despite all our claims, we have many of the same problems that everybody else does. We have bickering and division and distrust among believers. Gossip and mocking and factions in Christ's church Self-righteous Christians who put others down in order to lift themselves up. False teaching and those who compromise their beliefs to suit others. And then on the other end, judgmentalism and those who use their beliefs as a wall between them and others. And the problem is, when we tell a great story like that, and then we have lives that have all the same problems that the rest of the world does, for a lot of people, that makes the truth of Christianity unbelievable. It makes it fundamentally hypocritical because they say you believe all these high-minded things, but in practice you look just like everybody else. What we're going to talk about today is the difference between this spiritual side where we talk about these big claims, these truth claims that we make, and then the practical side where in a lot of ways we have to deal with all the same things that the rest of the world does. The big question for today is what do we do when our spiritual beliefs are undermined by our practical problems? What do we do when in, every, in the way that we talk about the church, it looks like this perfect island retreat, but then in the way that sometimes we experience the church, it is a spider, a scorpion in the shower. <laughs> what do we do when our spiritual beliefs are undermined by our practical problems? That's what we're going to see in the scriptures today. This is going to be a very interesting passage of scripture because Paul is dealing with a specific uh, instance, a specific issue that arose in the Philippian church as he turns in uh, chapter 4 to deal with this specific issue. Let's look at uh, verses 2 to 3 of Philippians chapter 4. Paul says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. 
So again, he's dealing with a specific problem, and so we want to start by asking, what is that problem? The problem, what is it? What is going on in Philippi that Paul is taking this time here now to address and to call out and to encourage agreement? Well, here we have two members of the Philippian church, Euodia and Syntyche, who are, dis- who are in some sort of disagreement. And we don't have any of the details about what this disagreement is. A lot of people have speculated and tried to guess what it might be about, but the truth is that all we know about these two people is what we read right here, which is not a whole lot which is that they're members of the church in in, uh, Philippi and that they're in some kind of disagreement. But I think that we can say that it's probably not just some petty squabble, that it's not just some personal problem that these two uh, believers have together because look at what Paul says about them in verse 3. He says that these two women have labored side by side with me in the gospel. And so the Apostle Paul, catch this, that the Apostle Paul, the church founder, the apostle to the Gentiles, one who's going throughout all the known world and planting all these churches, singles out these two women, Euodia and Syntyche, as those who have labored side by side with him, who have joined with him in his missionary work that he's performing. And so whoever these two people are, we know that they are prominent members of the church. That as Paul brings them up, the people reading this letter, the church of of, uh, Philippi, would know who these these women are, and would recognize that they have worked together with the Apostle Paul. They're prominent members, they're co-laborers in Paul's missionary work, and then also just take a moment to think about it this way. So as Paul is writing this letter, it's not just Paul writing to a specific group of people a long time ago in a land far away, but actually we believe that Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So that means that God, in the person of the Holy Spirit, is working through Paul as he writes this letter to communicate not just Paul's words to the Philippians, but God's words to all people. And so you have to ask yourself the question, it's really interesting that God himself takes up space in his scriptures, takes up time to address this specific issue in this specific church between these two specific people. So it's significant. Whatever we can say about this disagreement between these two people, we know that it's significant, that they're prominent members of the church, and that God is trying to show us something through this example. So what's the problem? It's a high-profile disagreement that had broken out between two influential members of the church. That's what's going on in Philippi. That's what Paul is responding to, and that's the occasion that's the, those are the circumstances by which God is going to teach us something in his holy word. So let's look at what the solution that Paul offers to this situation is. That he is talking about there's a, there's a problem going on, there's this division, there's this disagreement between these two individuals. What is the solution that Paul gives? It's actually pretty interesting and maybe a little bit unexpected. But I want to look at three things that Paul does in his encouragement, and just these two short verses that show us what Paul's solution to this division is. So the solution, what can help heal these divisions? What does Paul do to help heal these divisions? First thing he does is he appeals to Christian love. Paul appeals to Christian love. For evidence of this, we actually have to look back at verse 1 that comes right before Paul jumps in and says, I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Syntyche. This is what he says in verse 1 to begin chapter 4. He says, Therefore, my brothers... Whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus, or stand firm in this way, in the Lord, my beloved. 
So notice that before Paul goes into these commands and into this real challenge as he's naming individual people in the church, he doesn't just come in like a bull in a china shop and start giving commands and giving rebukes, but actually he begins by reminding them of his deep love for them to say, I love you and I long for you as your spiritual shepherd. You are my joy and my crown. You are my beloved people. And then he goes in to give the command. And so this is how he appeals to Yodi and Syntyche. He doesn't appeal to them, notice, as the Apostle Paul. He doesn't say, I have the authority as the Apostle who has met Jesus, who has been tasked with this job of planting these churches, to tell you now that you must agree in the Lord. No, instead, he says, I'm your brother. I'm your brother in Christ. I love you. I'm your shepherd. Now let me come alongside you and help you to agree in the Lord. Another uh, hint that we see in here is in the way Paul delivers the message itself. Look again at verse 2, at the words he uses. He says, I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. And the Greek word for entreat there is not a command or a rebuke. It literally means to call to my side. So it's as if Paul is saying, now I'm calling to my side Euodia and Syntyche, and I'm asking them, I'm encouraging them to come to agreement in the Lord. You see a really beautiful picture here of Paul not sitting them down and wagging his finger, but actually coming down, getting on their level, putting an arm around them and encouraging them to come together. And so Paul begins this address of this division by appealing just to simple Christian love to say that I encourage you as a brother, as a fellow believer, as someone who loves you and cares for you to come to agreement in the Lord. Second, Paul appeals to supernatural unity. Paul appeals to supernatural unity. In other words, it's not so much that Paul is commanding unity, but he's reminding of a unity that already supernaturally is there. Look again at verse 2. It's very interesting what he says. He says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord, in the Lord. Notice he doesn't say, I entreat you to agree, but no, to agree in the Lord. And I want to challenge you there that that's not a throwaway line, that sometimes as we read the Bible, we can just start to see things like in the Lord, in Christ, in Christ Jesus, just as these little phrases that Paul inserted in there, because he's like, oh yeah, I'm I'm an apostle. I should probably say the name of Jesus or say Lord every now and then. No, Paul has has a point that he's making here. In fact, in the letters of Paul, in his writings in the New Testament, he uses a form of that phrase, in Christ, in Christ Jesus, in the Lord, in him, 164 times. This is part and parcel of Paul's thinking about what the church is, is that we as Christians are in Jesus Christ. And so what does that mean? Well, Paul's actually touching on one of the central realities of the Christian life and faith, that by faith... We are united to Jesus Christ. That we talk, about, we talk about salvation through faith, through God's grace, by the faith that we have in God. But what we don't talk about often, or often enough, I believe, is that the mechanism by which we receive salvation from God is that we are united to Jesus Christ himself to the Son of God, to God in the flesh, that Jesus Christ, the one who was born a human, was perfectly obedient to God, died on the cross, rose again, ascended into heaven, intercedes at the throne of God on our behalf here and now, and will one day judge the living and the dead, that we are invited by faith to be united 
to Jesus Christ. And that it's that union with Christ, that spiritual union, that brings us all the blessings of God. Salvation, the ability to walk in the Spirit, uh, the, the community of the church. All of those things are offered to us when we are brought into the person of Jesus Christ. We are in the Lord. Therefore, what Paul's doing here, as he tells them, agree in the Lord, he's not saying, I need you to work out your differences. He's not saying, I need you to just agree to disagree. He's not saying, I need you to just pretend to get along so that we can get to the business of ministry. No, what he is saying here is remember that you already are united individually to Jesus Christ and therefore united to one another. Look at what Paul says about the church in uh, the book of Romans chapter 12. He says, as in one body, we have uh, many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So what he's talking about there is a human body, saying we have different body parts, we have arms and legs, and they don't serve the same function. And then he says, so just like that, in Christ, uh, though we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. And so the message that Paul gives us here is that because we are individually united to Jesus Christ, we're also united to one another in his body, the church. So his message to these two individuals in this specific situation is to call them to remember, you don't have to make up unity. You don't have to achieve unity. You don't have to fabricate unity. God has given you unity as a gift. So act like it. He's saying, you are sisters in Christ. You are the body of Christ. Now act like it. You see, this is a very different way. I mean, it seems like, a, like splitting hairs, but it makes all the difference. Think about it this way. My, my dad had this line that he would always use because I grew up with three younger brothers. And if you have brothers or sons, or if you've ever been around uh, the males of the human species, then you know that what can begin as joking around can turn into a real uh, blood feud pretty quickly, right? Uh, often with real physical altercations, people in headlocks and noogies going on and broken legs, and that never actually happened. <laughs> never mind. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> you know that among uh, human males, that's something that can happen. And my dad always had this line when we would get into arguments and we would get mad at each other. He would say, your brothers act like it. That's very different from him saying, I need you guys to try to be brothers. I need you guys to, to, to fabricate together this brothership that you're supposed to have. I need you to pretend that you have this unity so that you can achieve some sort of unity together as brothers. No, instead, he just appealed to what was already true, that we are brothers. We do exist one to another as brothers, so we better act like it. It's the same way in the church. That Paul is saying, you have supernaturally been united to Jesus Christ and therefore to one another, so act like it. It's not something that you have to make up. It's not something that you have to pretend to have. It's something that you do have. And as long as you're acting in a different way, then you're missing out on what God has gifted you, which is this supernatural unity together as brothers and sisters in him. Paul appeals to supernatural unity. We saw he appeals to Christian love. And then finally... And maybe most interestingly, Paul appeals to eternal destiny. He appeals to the eternal destiny of Christians in verse 3. He reminds them that these women, Euodia and Syntyche, their names are in the book of life. And the book of life is very interesting. It's this image that the author of Revelation uses several times. It's an image that's supposed to show what it is to be saved. 
Here's what the book of Revelation says about people whose names are written in the book of life. And I'm not going to look up these scriptures, but I encourage you to write these down or take a picture of the screen so you can do that on your own or in your groups. But this is very interesting. When Paul evokes the book of life, this is what that means. People whose names are written in the book of life will never lose their salvation. They have an assurance that once they are brought into God's family, they do not lose that salvation. People whose names were written in the book of life were chosen by God. That God is the one who wrote their names into the book of life. And that he wrote them before the foundation of the world. That's what that verse says in Revelation 13, 8. They will never fall away from serving God. That those whose names are written in the book of life persevere to the end of the Christian life. They will stand in the final judgment. And stand as in they won't fall in the final judgment. That they will be judged, not on on the accordance of their own personal holiness, but on the holiness and the righteousness of Jesus Christ, to whom they have been united by faith. And then finally, it tells us that those whose names are written in the book of life will live in eternal peace with God forever and ever and ever. This is what it means to have your name written in the book of life. So why does Paul as he addresses this, this feud, this disagreement, this division in the church, why does he appeal to that? Why does he remind them that your names are all in God's book of life? Well, he's reminding them, and probably not just these two individuals, but probably anybody in the church who had lined up behind either of them, that they can disagree, but they can't disagree with suspicion. Notice here that Paul is saying, you have a division, you have a disagreement, let me remind you that just because you think you're right and you think the other person is wrong does not mean you can think that you are good and the other person is evil. It doesn't mean that you can think that you are in the will of God and the other person is against the will of God. In other words, he's saying, you're all in the book of life, you're all saved, so when you disagree, don't have bad faith. Don't assume bad faith on someone else's part. This is something that we need to hear as Christians. Have you heard that phrase, bad faith, used in the news lately? It's because we seem to be unable to disagree with one another without assuming that because I think you're wrong, you must be an evil, wicked, forbidden person. (laughs) Instead, when we disagree as Christians, it's okay to say, you know, I think I'm right, and I think you're wrong, And yet, I believe that we are united in Jesus Christ, that we are destined together for this glorious future in Christ. And so I don't have to think you're an evil, wicked person. I can think that we are both on the same page in what matters. So maybe we disagree in the specifics. So, what is Paul doing here? Well, he's telling Christians to resist that attitude. To remember that we have a supernatural unity and a shared future in Christ. That these people who you may have serious disagreements with are your brothers and sisters and those who have received the same grace from Jesus Christ that you have. Their names are in the same book of life that your name is. So what's the solution? As we pull together all these things that Paul appeals to, I want you to notice something that Paul doesn't address this issue. He doesn't say, okay, now I'm turning to Euodia and Syntyche and I have a three-step process for how we can have some conflict resolution in the church. So I'm going to set you up with a mediator. You're going to sit down. You're going to express what you're feeling. You're going to speak with I statements. You're gonna, um, we're going to have ground rules. I'm going to have the person ring a bell when your time is up and then we're going to go over here. You're going to write this down. He doesn't have a process that he walks them through. The solution that Paul offers to them is this, that deep truth heals deep division. Deep truth 
has the capacity to heal our deep divisions in the church between you and another believer. Paul draws their eyes up off of the specific problem that they're facing. He doesn't even mention what it is. He gives so little time to the specific division that he doesn't even bother to mention what they're disagreeing about. Instead, he makes a beeline straight for the deep truth of the Christian faith. He draws their eyes up off of their problems and up toward God and the ultimate realities of the Christian life. Brotherly love, union in and with Christ, the shared destiny of those whose names are in God's book of life. So that's the solution, that when we find ourselves bogged down in these particular problems and disagreements, what we first need to do is look up, remember the truth about God, and let that be the thing that guides you toward agreement in the Lord. Now, for all of that, though, I don't want us to stop short of a method that Paul offers to us, because he actually does give us something that we can do as a way to heal these divisions, to use that, that deep truth. And so the solution is deep truth heals deep division. The method, the question we should ask is, how do I then deploy that deep truth? So I know these beliefs, I have the word of God, but I also have this division. How do I get this into that? How do I let the principles, the truth about God, guide me into engaging with the particular problem that I'm dealing with? If deep truth heals deep division, how do we bring it into our relationships? Look at the word Paul uses in verse 2. This is really interesting what's, what Paul is doing here. He says, I entreat you, Odi, I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. And the word for agree in Greek is the word phroneo. Phroneo. And it's very interesting that Paul uses this particular word here because Paul has used this word a few times in very key places throughout the whole book of Philippians. It's as if he's saying with this word that he wants to call their attention back to the other teachings that he's made before. Look at what I mean in, in uh, Philippians 2.2. 2. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Same word as agree in the passage we're looking at, phroneo having the same love, being in full accord, and then again, phroneo, of one mind. Look at what he says a couple verses later in Philippians 2.5. He tells the Philippians, have this mind, phroneo, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then describes the example of Jesus Christ, of his humility, of his servanthood, of his other's orientation in his life. Look at Philippians 3.14-15. He says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those who, of us who are mature think this way, phroneo, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. So what I think is going on here, as Paul uses this word, which is so rich with meaning from this whole letter that he's written, is as if to say, now I'm turning to a specific situation, and I want you guys to do what I've talked about time and time again over the course of this letter. He is calling in this particular situation for individuals to apply the deep, transcendent truth that he's communicated by the power of the Holy Spirit in his letter thus far, to come to agreement and unity together in the Lord. So what does this mean for how we heal divisions? What method then are we looking at? Well, it's really simple, actually. It's that we apply spiritual truths, the deep, transcendent truths of the faith, two practical, particular, specific problems that we face. Here's what I mean. Remember what we identified back at the beginning when I started talking about the spider and everything? And the, 
Christians, we have a lot of high-minded ideals. We have a lot of powerful beliefs about the world, about the universe, about who God is, about who we are, about the destiny that we have in store for us. But we still have a lot of the same practical problems that we see all over the place in the world today. Arguments, disputes, hurt feelings, differences of opinion, different leadership styles, relational rifts, all kinds of things like that. We still deal with those same things that everybody else does. And so what's going on there? Well, it's not so much that we're supposed to just have beliefs up here and then live our lives over here and, and put one foot in front of the other and just do uh, and just live our lives and, and use uh, and separate those two things. What's actually going on and what Paul is calling these individuals to do is to take those deep, high, distant, distinct truths of the Christian life and bring them to bear upon the specific situations that you deal with. This is not some new crazy teaching, by the way. This is what we are meant to do, and yet it is something that we have failed at doing. We need to be sure that there's no disconnection between what we say we believe and the way that we act. And yet, the whole world wants us to do that. In fact, I was reading an article earlier this week where some professor was talking about how you can't judge religions based on fact, that it's not about facts, that it doesn't matter if the things are true because it gives meaning and it gives direction in your spiritual life. It, gives, you know, it connects you to your ancestors and nonsense like that. And the reason that it's nonsense is because if we say we believe that God is a certain way, we say we believe that there was a man, Jesus Christ, who is truly God and truly man, who lived a real life, who in this moment intercedes for us, who's coming back to judge the living and the dead, and then we say, but it doesn't really matter if that's true. Then nothing matters. Then people are right to look at the church and say, you say you believe these things, but you live a totally different way, so that truth must be impotent, or you must not be doing it right. Here's the challenge that I want to give us today. We need to apply these spiritual truths to practical problems. And what that simply means is looking at the things that we face in our daily lives and not getting stuck there, but lifting your eyes up and asking yourself, what do my core beliefs about the world, what does my faith tell me that I should do, tell me who I should be, tell me how I should respond to this thing that I'm facing in my life? When practical problems present themselves, turn to the truth first. Don't look to worldly wisdom. Don't just try to keep your eyes focused on what's going on here, but remember that the truth that God has given us is meant to be applied to real life. We can't hold those things separate. Otherwise, we've misunderstood the truth, or maybe we've under-understood it. We haven't fully grasped what it really means. Jesus Christ is a, is a human being in this moment, and he is fully God in this moment. He in himself has brought together the things of God and the things of humanity, and he calls us in union with him and an imitation of him to do the same, to bring the deep truths of life into the practical moments that we live and that we face. Let's pray together. God, we just stop and thank you for your scripture and the way that even when you're talking about a specific place and a specific time, you give us such powerful challenge for our real lives. So God, we pick that challenge up now and we ask that as we go to worship, would you help us to see the things that maybe we've had disconnected from our faith in you? 
God, maybe the, the marital struggles, the parenting issues, God, the relational uh, issues that we've had with other people, our financial woes, maybe addiction and depression, all the hurt that we face, God, we just pray that in this moment we could begin to connect what we believe about you and the issues that we face in our day-to-day lives. Lord Jesus, you are so good to us to save us, God, to bring us into your family, to offer us a place where we can be united to those who are also united to you. And so, God, as we worship, draw us closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen.